0: Hi, my name is Maddie. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Mary. The New Testament reading is found in Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together at the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone the lord added daily to the community those who were being saved the word of the lord hi my name is colleen thanks for standing for the gospel reading it's found in matthew 22 verses 34 through 40. when the pharisees heard that jesus had left the sadducees speechless they met together one of them a legal expert tested him teacher What is the greatest commandment in the law? He replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are the God who speaks the one who called the world into being, who, who spoke into the chaos and brought order and light into the world. And so we pray this morning as we hear your word, would you speak over our hearts, would you hover over us as your church today and bring our lives back into order that we too might grow together and flourish to the glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. You may be seated. I don't know what the reasons are for choosing a gym, but usually, and I don't know because obviously I don't go very often, but I do know that what factors into it is usually, well, is the equipment clean? Do the classes work according to my schedule? Uh, Is this close enough to my house? Should I choose it? And so very often we bring that same set of questions into our understanding of what church is. So church must be the place where uh, it's convenient, I like the people, it's close, they've got good facilities, classes are not bad, okay, let's do it. But the thing is, you go to a gym really not because of the people who are there. Typically, you go for your own personal private benefit. It's so you can get in shape, and if other people are there, then fine, we'll take it or leave it. And in the same way, we can tend to sort of approach church that way to say, well, I'll come, I'll do what I need to do, but really I'm just here so I can grow personally, so I can become more spiritual, so I can be more like Jesus, so I can grow in my faith. So where's the church that helps me grow? Now on the face of that, there's nothing, quite, there's nothing totally wrong with that approach, but it's also not the full picture of what it means to be the church. Because when the Bible talks about growth, it doesn't make it a private endeavor. That our growth in Christ is never a private enterprise where it's this thing that I just got to figure out what classes and what programs and what things I need to do so that I can grow. In fact, when the scriptures talk to us about growth, it's always in the context of a community so that the more we grow together, the result becomes a stronger and, and more vibrant even individual life with God. So we're starting a series today called Grow, and it's all about the practices that we uh, engage in as believers that form us as the people of God and help us grow together as the church. And the result is that we find that even our own personal and individual lives are growing uh, uh, to, in the Lord. So our text today is Acts 2. If you've got a Bible or a phone, or whatever, you can scroll there. Acts two forty two. If not, you can just look up at the screen. It says the believers devoted themselves... And I want to stop there for a minute because that is kind of the operating word through each week of the series. They devoted themselves. We kind of live in a day where people have a choice, so many choices about what to give themselves to that actually the plague of our age is that we don't really want to commit to anything. And so this has been well-documented. There's jokes about this. There's editorial pieces about this. There's TED Talks about this. Where we have, in our day, this fear of missing out, this FOMO. And so we don't really want to devote ourselves to anything. Because what if I say yes, I'm going to be part of this thing. And then all of a sudden I realize there was another thing that came up that I could have said yes to. And so every yes is tentative. It's like, yeah, let me just pencil that in. None of us use pencils or paper diaries but everything is just sort of penciled in because, hey, we can erase it. We can reschedule it. Don't, I don't know if I want to devote myself to anything. But maybe this approach in our day is really a reaction to watching a previous era devote themselves to the wrong things and give themselves fully. You know, may, Just think of it even in, in the job standpoint. You gave your whole life, the best years of your life to this company, only to be let go, right, when you needed employment. And so there's this... Hesitancy now to say, I don't know if I want to devote myself to anything. Because, as you've heard the saying goes, the only thing worse than failure is success or succeeding at the wrong things or at things that don't matter. And so there's one or two areas. Either we give ourselves all the way to something, we're like, man, that was not worth investing my life in, or we don't give ourselves to anything and we're always just sort of living life skimming the surface. Kind of say, well, I kind of pop into church, I go every now and again, but I'm just, I don't know how devoted I am. And right away, I want to say that every practice that we talk about over the next eight weeks requires a kind of posture of the heart that says, I am all in. I'm devoting myself to, because this is what it means to grow up as the people of God. This is what it means to grow as the church. And so the scripture says that the believers devoted themselves, and then it lists several things, the apostles' teaching, community, to the shared meals, to their prayers, a sense of awe came over everyone, and God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. Now, I want to point out that in this paragraph, there's a couple times where Luke, the, the writer of the book of Acts, clearly says this is what God does. It's God who performs the miracles. There are things that happen in the life of the church that only God can do. Amen? And then it says what the church would do, because it's it's also wrong to say, well, that's up to God, whether I grow or not, and whether we become uh, the people of God or not, that's just up to God. No, 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 there's things that God does, and then there's ways that through our practices, we actually participate with what God is doing. And so then it says, and they would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. And every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes and they shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. And then it says, back to what God does, the Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. Church growth is not the result of human work. Church growth is not because oh, we've we figured it out, we've got the right techniques. We've made. No, it is the Lord who adds. And yet... That's not an excuse for us to sort of be passive and say, well, I don't know if God wants us to grow, if God wants us to, to grow, not simply numerically, but also in, in terms of our depth and relationships with one another and with the Lord. I guess that'll just happen automatically. And the, the, this passage says, no, 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 it is the Lord who does the miraculous, the supernatural, the, gr- the numerical even, but it's the people of God who join this work of God through their intentional practices. Does that make sense? There's there's a way that we participate in God's work and that results in our growth. And so today, week one, what I want to talk about is that first phrase, the apostles' teaching. What does it mean to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? Uh, First of all, what does that phrase even mean? So Luke is the guy who wrote the book of Acts. And and this is sort of a volume two to Luke's first volume, which is the gospel according to Luke. And that's the story of Jesus and Jesus' teaching. So before sequels became a thing, Luke was doing it, right? So Luke's got his volume one, volume two, and he intends for us to link them together so that the teaching of the apostles is really the teaching that bears witness to Jesus and who he is and what Jesus himself is taught. And we're meant to kind of make this connection that the mission of Jesus continues through the church. And the teaching of Jesus is being passed on now through the teaching of the apostles. So they're preserving it. They're pointing back to Jesus. This is an authoritative kind of teaching. Years ago, um, through a, a very sort of Forrest Gump-like set of circumstances, a friend uh, of mine and and I got to spend a couple days at the home of uh, Eugene and Jan Peterson, and uh, you'll know Eugene Peterson's name as the translator of the uh, the Message Bible, and that is a phenomenal gift to the church in itself, but but I have been really shaped by uh, his writings about pastoral ministry and what it means to be the church and to be a pastor, and so on one of these occasions, we're, we're talking with him, and he's... Uh, not not always aware of all the different movements that are and trends that are happening, you know, in, in every different corner of church world, and so I asked him about one of the particular things that uh, arises very often here in Colorado, and that is the attitude towards institutions, uh, an attitude of suspicion towards institutions. You know, it's, oh, I don't know if I want to join anything. I don't know if I want to really be part of a church, well, let's just do our own thing. Why can't we just go in the woods and sip our whiskey by the fire and call it church? You know, as, as, as good as that may or may not be. Um, and so I was asking Eugene about this. What, what does it take to sort of have a gathering constitute or qualify as church? And there's probably many things he could have said if he had had longer to think about it. But the first two things that came uh, to his mind, I thought, were profound enough. And one of the things he said is, it's not the church unless there's room for people who you wouldn't have chosen to be there. And this is the, the challenge about, well, let's just gather on my back deck. Let's just do this thing. Let's just have our little thing. We don't need them and we don't need programs and we don't need that stupid institution and all the money stuff and da-da-da-da-da. let us just, let's just hang out, man, and be the church. I have good news for you. You can gather as the church and be the church. You don't have to choose or pit one against the other. And in fact... One of the, the, so that what he was saying is, look, if, you, if there's no room for people that you would not have chosen, in other words, if there isn't an outward facing, come and join, come and whosoever will may come, if there isn't that dynamic to the gathering, it's not yet the church. It may be a great fellowship group, but it is not yet the church. And then the second thing which relates more closely to what we're talking about today is he said, there has to be some connection to the apostolic faith, the faith of the first followers of Jesus. Now, in some denominations, it's like, oh, it's really, you know, apostolic succession, and we can trace Peter to so and so. That's fine. I I don't think we're saying that. But what we are saying is, what is the link? What links us to the faith of the first followers of Jesus? And so when we talk about the apostles' teaching, we are talking about that link. We're talking about that connection to the very first followers of Jesus. How do we know we're still in step with them? And how do we know that if they were to show up today, they would be like, we do not recognize this at all, right? So how do we make sure that we're still devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching? Well, there's actually two ways to answer that. One is the scriptures itself, the letters that, that the apostles wrote, and that's why we have the New Testament. It, it, it came very early on to be treated as scriptures. The things Paul would write, the things Peter wrote, the things James and John and others wrote down, these letters became documents that were then deemed a scripture inspired by God, documented versions of the testimony. It's called the New Testament, the testimony to God revealed in Jesus Christ. And so that matters. But the trick is, as it turns out, you can read the Bible and still arrive at the wrong conclusions. In fact, many of the early heresies that started springing up in the first, second, third centuries are because people were taking a, an overly literal reading of the scripture and arriving at some strange conclusions about who Jesus really was and, what, and all of this stuff. And so in the early 300s, a number of these bishops, about 300 bishops, gathered together at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, and they said, okay, we need to set this in stone, so to speak. We need to codify this. We need to put this down in writing. We know what we've been stewarding, but there's some funny stuff happening out there. There's some wildness that doesn't belong. And so we need to trim out the, the heresies and we need to put, put, make it plain uh, the, 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 the rule of faith. And in fact, that phrase, the rule of faith, is used even earlier. Even earlier than 325, many of the early teachers would develop some short versions of this is the essence of faith. This is the regular faith. This is a way to, reg- to, to keep it um, ordered and instructed. And so they, they wrote down at that council in 325 what we now call the Nicene Creed. They revisited it again in 381, and then uh, that's the form pretty much that we have today. Now, I know some of you are like, I don't know, do we really need anything else except the Bible? You're still not convinced, and I I understand that. But here's what I want to say. The creed does not supersede the Scripture's authority. It actually brings out Scripture's authority and shows us what the Scripture is authoritatively saying about who God is. Maybe this analogy will help you. So we have four kids, and once in a while we're crazy enough to take them bowling. And uh, we've learned over the years that, that family bowling is much more fun if you put up the bumpers. <laughs> because otherwise, you just spend so much time watching a ball go down the gutter, and you're like, oh, well, well uh, there goes $10. We just, you know. <laughs> and so, you like, this is going we're all going to have more fun if we can keep the ball in, on the lane and, and, and head down toward the pins. Well, look, this is the same thing, all right? The creed makes it so that you can read the the scriptures without ending up in the gutter. It makes it so you can read the scripture and not arrive at a funny conclusion about who Jesus is, or who the Father is, or who the Holy Spirit is, or what it means to be the church. It keeps it from going off. And look, we all will have more fun if we're not reading the Bible and arriving at heresies. (laughs) Okay? So the creed and the canon work together like hand in glove, like these bumper lanes for bowling. Now, I, I, we did a whole series on the, the various phrases of the creed a couple years ago, um, uh, two or three years ago now, but I want to just give a, sl- a quick overview of in what way the creed helps us hold on to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and the effect, the formative effect that that has on us as the people of God. Now, during Lent, we said the Nicene Creed together. Uh, during Easter, we said the Apostles' Creed, a little bit shorter. But if you were paying attention a little bit, you might have noticed that the Nicene Creed has basically three stanzas, three paragraphs, three verses, if you'd like. And they each, each verse deals with a different person of the Trinity. Today is Trinity Sunday. And we're not going to spend time trying to explain how it's three and yet one. There's no way, so we're not going to try, right? But the Creed invites us to confess Confess this mystery. To confess, this is what we believe about the Father, about the Son, and about the Holy Spirit. And in each of those three stanzas, they each begin with the same three words. The words are, "We believe in." Now, I've often joked that if this was written in Boston or in Harvard Square, or whatever, the words might have been, "I know that." Because there's a whole amount of, con- there's a lot of confidence and certainty and proofs and we can, you know, demonstrate all this stuff. Or if it were written in Southern Cal- California, it, it might, the words might have been, I feel like. You know. But thankfully, providentially, it wasn't. It was written in Nicaea and, in, the, in the 300s and it says, we believe in. And so I want to take each of those three words and I actually want to say four things about the way that the creed works. Forms us. And the first is this, the word we. Right off the bat, the very first word that comes out of our lips is plural. And so we're forced to reckon with this reality that faith occurs in a community. It doesn't happen in an individual private vacuum, safe container. No, it happens out in a living, breathing community. In fact, a wild community that sometimes and often disagrees with one another. And so the first thing we want to say is that the creed is actually an instrument of unity. The Nicene Creed is the only confession of Christian faith that is affirmed by Christians in every stream of the body of Christ, East, West, Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox. And yet, it's sharp enough to exclude those outside it. So we could, we could name some other uh, things that we say, that, that's, that's close, but not Christian, such as Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness. It, the creed is sharp enough to draw those lines and yet wide enough to say, look at the family who affirms these things. Now, this we is both a global we and a historic we. It's a we that reminds us that there are always others, that we in Colorado Springs are not the only we. There's also a we in the global south. There's also a we in Egypt called the Coptic Christians. And when they suffer, we suffer. And so the first word, this instrument of unity, it reminds us that we are all connected. I heard and Nikki Gumbel at Holy Trinity Brompton in London once say, you know, when, when people are persecuting Christians, they don't ask them what denominational affiliation they are. They don't say to the, oh, you're Coptics. Oh, we don't get, we don't, we're really just looking for the charismatics. Or, yeah. Where's the non-denom folks? They're not saying that, right? And so there's a solidarity that we have to embrace that this is the global we that we belong to. But there's also... A, uh, a, a historic we, a we that connects us to the story of the church throughout the centuries. Maybe the best way to illustrate this is to think about a hiking trail. So when I first moved to Colorado 17 years ago, the person that I worked for thought it would be a great idea to send me with some interns to go hike Pikes Peak. I mean, it's t- totally unfair. I mean, I've only been here a month, hadn't even acclimated. But let's be honest; it wouldn't have mattered. So, I'm I'm with this group of, of interns hiking up Pikes Peak. You know, we start at this ungodly dark hour, uh, pre-dawn, and we, we arrive and we do the whole thing. You know, the whole Bar Trail, and um, and there was I was grateful that day for a global we, as in there were others hiking with me. Right? Everybody knows what's the first rule of hiking: never go alone. Right? So there's this. That's a picture of the global we. But I was also grateful that we weren't creating our own trail. I was also grateful that someone else had marked out this trail. That's the historic we. That's the fact that says somebody else has chopped down the the branches and the thicket of heresies and cleared the way and said, now this is the path, walk in it. And so there's already a trail prepared. When we say we, we mean both this global we and the historic we, which leads to the second thing I want to say about the word we. The creed actually requires a posture of humility. It requires a posture of humility because just the fact that others have blazed this trail before, have gone before, confronts our rugged individualism that says, I need to boldly go where no one has gone before. Faith is the one place that you don't want to go where no one has gone before. And actually... One of the things that is ironic about kind of our age of, you know, pluralism, and there were some remarks earlier this week where someone was was taking an issue with a Christian for believing Christian things, you know. And one of the arrogance of our day is this desire to sort of say that we need to transcend all the faiths and really make sure that we're okay with saying that everybody is the same. And it sounds humble and gracious and kind, but it's actually the peak of arrogance, Because it says that we now know (laughs) that everybody who is muddling around with these early ancient religions, they didn't really know. We now, Americans, we know. We know what's really right. And so we can stand above it all and say, well, that might be true. That might be true. Who knows? We're just, you know. And so in, in one sense, the greatest humility is in the posture of saying, I am believing something that was handed down to me. We are stewards of an ancient faith. This actually is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So, Paul, I mean, think about Paul, okay? If anybody could say, I'm just going to go ahead and blaze my own trail, it might have been Paul, right? Pharisee of Pharisees, completely great Hebrew background of education, all this stuff, has, an encou- has a vision of the risen Christ. I mean, today, that's enough to like write a whole book, right? When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I am just, that which I have received is what I have believed and which I am passing on to you. Paul himself takes this posture and says, this is a received faith. And actually, for all of us, there's a great relief here. I talk with a lot of young people who grew up believing that they had to personally verify every item of the the faith. Oh, I've got, how can I prove the resurrection? How can I make sure that I, okay, I've got it. I've got, I've got all the arguments set. Okay, good. I can now say that I believe because I have personally validated all, every item on the checklist. Listen, apologetics are wonderful. They can be a great sort of uh, strengthening to your faith. That, that's wonderful. But in the end, we are all believing a handed down witness of the early Christian's. And actually, if you want to press it further, a handed down witness of a couple of women at the empty tomb that day. We're all hanging on the words of those women who then told the disciples, who then also went and saw, and and on and on it goes. And if that is not an invitation to humility, I'm not sure what is. But the creed requires us to take this posture. It also means, on quote-unquote the other side of these issues, that there's not the freedom to innovate the faith. You can't all of a sudden say, oh, well, actually, we we, we don't believe this thing, now we believe this thing. We we don't have the permission to deviate and innovate. Uh, What the creed outlines for us, we have to say, yeah, we got to stick true with that. Which leads us now to this next word, the word believe. The word believe speaks to us of faith, speaks to us of scripture in Hebrews where it says without faith it's impossible to please God. We've got to believe in who God is. And so the creed though functions, forms us as a guide in uncertainty. It's a guide in uncertainty. We live in, in, a, in a world that can be very confusing, and I meet more and more people who say, Glenn, I just don't know what to think. I heard this person, I heard that person, I read this blog, and then I read the response blog, and then I read the open letter to both of them, and then it was like, I just don't, I don't even know, what, what do I think anymore? <laughs> and it reminds me of the story I've told many times down here downtown about that episode, the Christmas episode of Little House on the Prairie where Pa, there's a snowstorm coming in, and Pa says, we better put the rope up to the barn because a storm's coming in. I grew up in Malaysia, which is so-called third world country, but I didn't know, I don't know anything about barns or putting the rope up to, I I have no clue what they're talking, I grew up around in cities, you know, but my father-in-law is a farmer. I married into a a farming family that that, that lives in the northwest corner of Iowa, and I asked him about this, and he said, oh yeah, especially in the early going years of the, uh, the Midwestern farms, there were these snowstorms that were so terrible that, that it would blind you, and you'd get lost even though you were walking a very familiar path. And so the diff- distance between the house and the barn, and you had to go out and do the last bit of chores before the night was over, you know, I don't know, shutting the chickens in or whatever, and, uh, and, 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 and you would sometimes get lost between that the, that short distance, that familiar distance. Why? Because of the blinding snowstorm. So they put this rope up so that once you, once you were coming back, you just hang on to the rope and it would lead you home. This is, I think, how hanging on to the Nicene Creed can help us, is it gives us a guide in uncertainty. In, in an age where everybody's got new opinions and there's lots of pro- popularity, but not a lot of credibility, the creed says, here's the faith that we've been handed down. Here's the guide in the midst of uncertainty. And I want to say this. I think that sometimes we live in tremendous confusion because we haven't yet devoted ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We've actually devoted ourselves to certain blogs and podcasts and Facebook posts more than anything else. So our whole world is shaped by the things we've devoted it to. And we've devoted our attention to links and stories and whether maybe it's a news thing or a popular teacher or something that some prophet said. And we've devoted ourselves to all of these little random little bits. We've devoted ourselves to everything except the apostles' teachings. And what if we took that time spent surfing the web and browsing podcasts and say, I'm going to read the New Testament and I'm going to have the creed as a guide so that I don't arrive at funky conclusions here. But I want to actually devote myself to this teaching. And I wonder how much of our confusion and uncertainty comes because we're not actually devoting ourselves to the Word of God and to prayer, but we're devoting ourselves to every whim of opinion and controversy and latest whatever, trending topic. That's not the way to live. Finally, the last word here in this phrase is the word in. And I think in is such a powerful word, because even with the words we believe, it could still be we believe that. We believe that pi is 3.14, blah, 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 right? We believe that two times two is four. We believe that. There's still a great amount of distance because of that word that. It's a little bit like, going back to the trail uh, metaphor, it's a little bit like standing at the trailhead and studying the map. Do any of you do this, study the map? I mean, some of you probably just like, let's just go. I'm the guy who studies the map. I'm like looking at the, I just want to make sure that we're reading, we're reading this correctly and we didn't accidentally end up on an eight mile loop as opposed to say a three quarter mile loop, which is what I really wanted to do. So I'm studying the map, and, and I thought how humorous would it be if you stood there and you started studying the map, and you're like, okay, I see that curl there, and there's, it looks like there, there's a change in elevation, looks like there's a little lake you can see, I bet that's gorgeous, and then you start coming back, and, you know, and then you stand there long enough that people are actually coming off the hike, and then you start to ask them, how was it like oh, it was amazing. There's this little loop, and then there's this little overlook, and you see the lake, and then it starts curling back around, and you're like, wow, it's gorgeous. And like oh, it was amazing. We saw this bald eagle or whatever flying right as we were there, and you think this is incredible, but you're still standing there at the trailhead, and you stand there long enough that other people start to arrive, and they're about to start the hike, and you're like, hey, hey, are you guys gonna do this hike? And like oh yeah, we're ready, man. We got our camelbacks or whatever, you know, Colorado people do. And we got all this stuff. We're ready. And you're like, oh, you are in for a treat. Because there's this little curl and then there's a loop and there's an overlook and you see the lake. And then right as you're coming back, there's a bald eagle. It's just amazing, you know. <laughs> and, and they're like, wow, have you been on it? And they're like, no, 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 I haven't been. On it. But, but I believe that. I wonder how our witness has been hurt by the fact that we know so much about God but we've not yet been on the trail. That we were taught to have an intellectual faith that we can check the list of all the stuff about I I know this, I know this, I know this, I know this. I believe that and I believe that and I believe that. And we're experts in what we believe while remaining distant from the God whom we confess. While remaining distant from the God that we worship. You see, at the end of the day, the point of the apostles' teaching is not the teaching. It's the living God that they were pointing toward. In the same way that a signpost, the point is not the sign. The point is the city that it's leading us to. The point of the creed is not the creed. The point of the creed is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and the invitation to draw near to Him. And so the last thing we have to say is that the creed is an invitation to proximity. Proximity. An invitation to come near the book of James. James says, look, you believe in God, great, the demons do too, and they shudder. There's something more that we need, a life that is changed by this nearness to God, the proximate relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In 1858, there's a 34-year-old French acrobat named Jean-Francois Gravelet. I'm probably butchering it. But he was known as Charles Blondine, And in the mid-1850s, he decided he was going to walk on this tightrope across Niagara Falls. I've told a bit of this story before. He was five foot five, 140 pounds. He had a rope that was 1,300 feet long, 2 inches wide, made entirely of hemp. And the people came out to watch it. And he crossed over on the other side and he made it. And they're like, okay, great, just be done now. And then he decides, I'm going to cross back. And then he does that. And then he decides this is so fun, he's going to keep doing it. And over the course of the next 40 or 50 years, Blondine ends up crossing Niagara Falls 300 times. Nut job. Just (laughs) totally insane. But the most famous story, I think, and the Smithsonian records it this way, is he crossed on one side and he emerged ready to walk back, but this time with his manager on his back. And his manager's name was Harry Calcord, and Blondine said, All right, when we go up on this rope, you are no longer Calcord. You are Blondine. And he said, Don't you try to balance on your own, or we will both die. I want you to cling to me. And if I sway, you sway. If I step you step. You are no longer callcord, You are Blondine. And they walk all the way across. And this is a beautiful picture to me of what faith really is. Paul said in the book of Galatians, it's no longer I who lives but Christ who lives in me. Nevertheless, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. And so, in the end, what's being asked of us in the Creed creed is not an intellectual faith, but a faith that has us grabbing on to God, laying hold of the God who laid hold of us. Gripping him and says, okay, and saying, God, you, the Father, you're the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. So I'm clinging to you even as I'm walking through the unseen. And I'm clinging to you, Jesus, because you are the Lord. You're the one who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. Jesus, I'm clinging to you and your salvation. Holy Spirit, you are the Lord, the giver of life. Come and breathe your life in me now. I'm clinging to you now. The end of all of this is proximity to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Would you bow your heads this morning?